Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. that, I, I would like to also address another question. 
what is Christ for? And can it be His? Or maybe you've got said differently, is it only intended to be His? Or is it designed to be His? You see, there's all kinds of different different philosophies about it. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss the same briefly. Uh, but one of the philosophies is uh, within what they call deism. Deism is the thought that God put the whole thing together and he wound it up like a clock and he just let it go to wind it down. So a deist says that there is a God, but he removed, I'm, I'm giving no sort of his own view on this, by the way, or any of you, think there's any deist among you, but if, there, if there's any deist watching, I'm giving you no objection. Um, but they would believe that that God is um, not involved in creation after man is in Christ. Um, and that to him, this is where we get um, shows. Um, has anybody ever heard of the Truman Show? Have any of these ever heard? Where essentially they, they're watching his life. Um, there's where you put things in motion and then others watch to see how people do it. And, um, you know, even some of the thought of the Matrix was a show, some of the Weird Plot, I mean, it's a, a, you know, a Netflix. Um, that's a, a thought. So the, the, the reality is, what is this life for and what is salvation for are two very, very simple yet old-school questions. This is an age-old question and deserves much more time given this morning. Many men and women must part, and I'm sorry I took the time to address it, but yet we make 45 minutes on each side of that. The early philosophers, and this is Greek, so you have the advantage, Greek, uh, the early philosophers wrestled with this question for most of, most of their life. The three specific Greek philosophers, Socrates, who is credited with being the father of Western thought and being the first philosopher was followed by his apprentice Plato and finally by Aristotle. All of them tried to address the question, what is this for? Why are we here? These men were brilliant, of course, but included in Platonism, Platonism, that the meaning of life is in attaining the highest form of knowledge. What he ultimately said is, the point of life is, in its highest form, knowledge and understanding. So the purpose of life is to understand and gain to know. The challenge with that, because that had an incredible impact on the way we think, we realize most of our Western thinking, and you're not getting this in that mind, you do realize that most of our Western thinking about God, about life, and even about the afterlife, was dictated by Plato, who was not a Christian or a believer in God. He was a pagan. Uh, uh, in fact, he was, they say likely he, was, he might have believed in many gods, but in most cases he gave no allegiance to any, allegiance to any specific god. You realize even our idea of heaven, Plato came from heaven. The fact that we live in a three-tiered reality, 
hell is beneath us, earth is here, and heaven is above us, fails. Not good. That's another word. So a guy who didn't even believe in this stuff wrote about it, and somehow it's become the very air we breathe. It's so integrated within us. We think about, and in our Western world, especially in, in the Western world, it's about knowledge. It's about information. Information is power, and, we, and I believe that. And we study, and we try to have this, and we try to have this, and we try to have this. But the problem is that idea that the purpose of life is to have knowledge and understanding is also dangerous. Because from the basis of socialism and capitalism, when they, this Foucault, establish the famous Latin saying, Cogito ergo sum, which we will know better in the English, I think, therefore I am. This is actually an incredibly dangerous framework for our walk with God and our humanity. This phrase is called the beginning of enlightenment. However, by you realize that this phrase is, they say, that's when enlightenment started. That's the foundation of enlightenment. However, by definition, it is the exact opposite of enlightenment. It was a framework that demanded that we define our life by our ability to reason and understand. I think, therefore I am. So my, my being is defined by, by my ability to reason and understand. Do you now maybe see why within the Western culture we ingrain this notion that we can understand? And what we, what, when what we think we understand is threatened, we get upset. Why? Because we believe that it's not threatening our thinking, it's threatening our being. I think, therefore I am. So if somebody looks to me to be good at thinking, I feel like they're looking to me to be This led us to a place of egocentric perspective. What God is always trying to do is to get us into the place where we move with his plan, with his heartbeat, with his divine flow of restoration and healing that has been moving since the beginning of time. And I think most of us would agree that this has very little to do with thought. With you not being able to explain what happens in the afterlife prevents the afterlife from happening. Why do we think it is that Jesus worked so hard to upend what they thought they understood about God? Because he was trying to prove the point that, yes, we are to understand. Yes, God wants to lead us into understanding. However, education is not the destination of the ascent of life. And by education, I'm talking about um, university. I'm, I'm more speaking about the ability to know and to reason. Do you realize right now one of the greatest threats that people are facing is what they don't understand? In our country right now, the reality is your country, my country, is getting browner. don't believe me, then you're absolutely not taking something from me. And I don't care 
which side sings it, whether the side that's telling you to get out or the side that's telling they should come or the side that's doing both. Um, Wow, I hate that one. Why did I do that? Uh, But the reality of it is our country's getting browner. We're seeing immigration and people from all other countries. So the population is getting browner and browner and browner. And yet with that comes their cultures, and it's something that we don't really understand. Yesterday, Tom and I left the airport, and out front of the airport, I've never seen this before with a new arrival area, off to the left is where all of the parking parks are. I didn't know that. Um, And there was a gentleman that was out in the grass um, and had his prayer mat out and was about to pray. He was about to be mad at me, though. Um, And and if I'm being very honest, it was it was striking to me. I looked over and he was out, and it wasn't. I didn't necessarily have a bad thought. I just thought, huh, this is kind of strange to see in in public like that. And immediately I felt something just touch me. So he did a playful thing, and he said, "Father, as he bows his knee, let your presence be with him." Because that guy's bowing to the east and praying, that he's a threat, and immediately thinking, is he here to blow up my car again? Like he's got a problem. So what I'm telling you is, we've got to understand that it's the oldest, it's the oldest world mystery that we hide what we can't understand because we think it's a threat to our being and our flesh to our thinking that we don't know how to understand and separate the flesh to our thinking from the flesh to our thinking. So when he said, I think therefore I am, I wouldn't say that was the case. I would say you are because you are because you are because you are because you are. You just are. That's why when people ask me to define God, I immediately my first immediate response is somebody says, Who is God? I say God is relational. relational at the core. You can't separate him from his creation. So whether or not anybody ever accepts Jesus, God will still be relational with them. Because he's relational. He's relational with everything and everyone all the time and always has been and always will be. He is interacting with everything. I couldn't be further from it than this. Now, I don't believe that God is up there like picking your clothes you realize that there are major players, and I'm not going to mention the guy's name, who right now are part of what they call the neo-Calvinist movement. The neo-Calvinist movement says that the, the people who flew the planes into the Twin Towers on 9-11 were following God's plans. The reason is because they believe that God's in control. God is in complete control all the time, and God has to be equally in control of the evil if he is good. That's not what I think. So this this pastor, and if I can have a large enough church, it's in Texas. I kind of like an outsider. Um, actually, was was writing in a blog about saying that a young woman that he counseled with at 10, 11 years old goes to a Pentecost service and 9/11 attacks, and and he said, "Was God's plan to keep you from coming to that outside party?" Yes, He did. 
everything that God has been in control. It's called dual predestination. Everything has been ordered. God already knew who was, what you were going to be, what your life was going to be like, where you, and believe me, it's, it's in us more than we'd like to admit. When you get in a car accident, don't you say, well, God knew this was going to happen and, and, you know, it was all part of his plan. How many times, I guarantee you, people will say, well, God never did this, so this was part of God's plan. I'm here to tell you it was not part of God's plan. That's just not part of God's plan. Now, here's the beauty of how this works, though. God is in, God is in power always. God has all authority. God is not pulling into puppet strings. God has all power, so he can take anything, all the darkness and the evil that we bring to the table, every game. We do bad stuff. And he just absolutely gives us the most beauty of power, but because of our desire to rationalize and explain, we then turn that into God is up there pushing buttons and pulling strings. You want to think that God is, is losing what happened this Sunday? wake up. Yes, he is. Do I think he was there? Absolutely he was. But the reality of it is, we are, therefore we are, therefore we are. To think what makes me, what underscores and announces my identity and place in all the created universe is a thought is an arrogant statement at the very least. Because then my being is somehow hindered or empowered by my ability to reason. Some of the people who understand God the best are the people who have never had an education in any sort of philosophy. Because they know how to test you. This stance then propagated what we know as personal salvation. Have y'all ever heard that term? The question we ask people is, is Jesus your Lord and what? Personal Savior. We ask people, have you ever, have you ever made Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? What that, that phrase came from is this thought. And it's something that's really interesting to me, and I, we don't have time to get into it, but it was always viewed as us stepping into something that was already happening. The early church, the apostles, Jesus, all the Jewish leaders, they didn't teach personal salvation. Not that God doesn't leave the 99 and find the one. Of course he does. Of course it's personal because I have a relationship with him. But personal salvation, it, it, it changes the framework. It would have been a phrase they wouldn't have been able to reckon or understand because their thinking wasn't that we each um, had our own personal river. Their thinking that we each are getting in the river. God's river is the flow that's been happening since the beginning of time. So when I accept him, I now don't have my own personal river between me and God that I've got in. I get in his river, and now I'm in the same river as everybody else that's ever been in the river. Does that make sense? So that's why the whole thing is communal at the very heart. Why? Because God is relational. He's always been relational. There's never been a time when he wasn't relational. So when you see this, that it, it really becomes this exaggerated philosophical view of individualism that in the West has actually done more harm than good, which is where we say things about like, you, 
it's one of the highest accolades you can have in our country is to be a lawfully admitted Christian. Is that right? As a business person, one of the highest accolades you can have is I did this. I'm the one who went to church every day. I did. Why? Because individualism is pervasive in this within our society. And I'm not saying that it doesn't require your individual effort or sacrifice or whatever. Of course it does. You can't wait for anybody else to do it for you. I'm not suggesting that. But I am suggesting that done well is supposed to be communal. Because the problem is, as soon as you think you've done it on your own, you're also unwilling to extend or to offer any of the rewards to anyone else. If you think you went from poor to rich on your own because you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, you're not going to be very willing to give to those who also are now at that moment poor. Why? Because it's my money. I went to work every day. I'm the one that accumulated it. I had nothing, and now I have something. And the walk of Jesus is not that. It's never been that. This is Zambia. In fact, I would say that that is possibly one of the most misappropriated individualism has been the source of depression, isolation, mental illness, ultimately rage, anger, and violence in our society. Why? Because we don't want anybody else to look at us like we have done it all. For the modern Western world, the good life has little to do with virtue. We live in an age of ethical Materialism, having won the battle for the heart and the soul of the post-enlightened West, the good life now has to do with achievement and acquisition, position and property, social status and being able to buy lots of stuff or having a multifaceted portfolio. So when we say, what, what is the American dream? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's the good life. That's what most of us would say. And I'm not against any of those things. But I would like to also be clear that that's why when we look at people who's in, who live in Africa and don't have anything and they're happier than we are, we get confused because we just want to go buy another jet ski. The good life is simply the life we imagined we would like to live. Let me describe the good life in a different way. The life we were meant to live, I believe life has a dream. I believe life is meant to be good, but meaning and goodness are not found in our unaided thinking. My kids pastor the Christian Living Church in Chicago, and I have the honor now, and you, you guys have had the chance to see three of your brothers and sisters leading the Christian Living Church with us. My kids pastor says, verse 6, says, what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, let me, let me just remind you, everything he's just mentioned 
is the way that in the Jewish world they were taught they attained righteousness God. So maybe another example it could be is, God, how should I come before you? With repentance, with confession, with worship, with believing the right doctrine, with quoting scripture, with tithing, and with church attendance. I'm trying, I'm not grappling with the the five and the ability to give you a a fair comparison. But that's that's essentially what he's talking about. And it was the thing that was ordered by God in the first place. So what he's defining to them is, this is how you believe that you are honed. And he's saying, God, is this how you want me to come before you? Is this what is pleasing to you? Will the Lord be pleased with this? And the Lord responds, he has shown us what is good. And what does the Lord require of us? To act justly. To love mercy. To walk humbly with the contrite. That is the good life. That's what it's for. That's what it's about. So when we say to him, God, I want to live a righteous life. I want to live a good life. I want to live a holy life. I want whatever our description is. And we say, so does that mean that I need to, to does everything we've been taught has been within the framework of, of, um, of, of religion. And really, the framework of, of religion is a system that says you do these things and now God is no longer angry with you. Does that sound a little bit familiar? You do realize that religion starts with one singular basis. And I'll tell you, what is a religion basis? It's the basis that we're separate from God. How do we get reconnected with him? That's the central theme of every religion that's ever existed since the beginning of time. You're separate from God. How do you get reconnected? So then it tells you, it tries to form the bridge in between the two of how do you get reconnected? And in some religions, it's that you kiss on Friday. And in some religions, it's that you pay the tithe. And in some religions, it's that you attend church or that you raise your hands or you don't raise your hands or whatever it might be. In some religions, it's that you um, that you bow six times a day, say seven times a day. Whatever. But every religion has a common theme. The, the interesting part about that is that God's never been religious. So he's never been separate from you. So he's never needed a religion to reconnect you. He's always been concerned with us seeking him and seeking him first. So what happens is he says, let me remind you what goodness is. What does good life look like? Is This is the good life, which God causes people to comprehend. It's possibly comprehended. Um, uh, I've I've written a redefinition of this. Um, A life of doing justice, working with God to make a right world wrong. uh, Excuse me, make right a world gone wrong. That's what justice is. And you realize that justice is the primary, prominent, overarching theme of the entire Bible and Scripture. You realize that we have the first God ever in history. This is what made the Hebrew people so unique. God, the God of the Hebrews was the first God ever to be the God of faith. He was the first. See, the God was always a God of power, a God of might. 
this is why they would describe God as best they could in dangerous times of this type of technology. Why? Because even the way that the gods framed the world was formed out of there was a great battle. And in the midst of this great battle, the world was came out of it. And that's why people also use – you realize that the, the whole thought, the original sin, that the world was – you realize that that's actually a pagan idea. The pagan idea is it started with a great war between the good gods and the bad gods, and somehow the bad gods won out of that sparked evil that became good. We live in sort of that end Christianity, and so we are all born into sin. The world's falling apart. See, it's amazing to these little things that just get into our stuff. So what actually it is is we're working with God to restore the world gone wrong. It's that simple. There was sin that was introduced into the world. We then partner with God to make that right. And how we make that right is everything. It's, it's in our intercessions. It's in our worship. It's in our devotion time. It's in our giving. It's in our caring. It's in our being Jesus light to the best of our ability. That is that rescue. And the reality is God has always, 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 always been on the side of the saved, the victim, the disenfranchised, and the left out. You will never, ever, ever, ever find God being the one who defends the powerful, the mighty, and the imperial, ever. That's what made our God so unique that they couldn't understand. Why? Because our God came in the flesh to stand how, to show the world how powerful he was, and he climbed on a cross and died. Their gods came to the world to show how powerful they were in their story, and they killed him. Our God came and let himself be killed. This is what was so revolutionary. Zeus and all the other Greek gods, they were described as power and their might and their victory was defined by the fact that they could destroy anybody with lightning bolts. So guess why we've spent a lot of our life thinking God was going to destroy a bunch of stuff with lightning bolts? Because we've got a Zeus-looking God. I'm sorry, but the reality is Christendom has a Zeus-looking God. Rather than a God who looks exactly like Jesus, he's always looked like Jesus, he will always look like Jesus. He is self-giving. He is a God that's more interested in giving than he is in taking. He always has been and always will be. So justice is always the odds of what God is doing, whereby God is always looking for the people who have someone else's boot on their neck and saying, I'm that person's God. That's the way this works. Uh, second thing, Elijah's loving mercy. You realize that it, to loving to extend the kindness and the mercy of God to his bachelor son. That's better than we're supposed to do. We're supposed to love mercy. So let me ask you this. So are we supposed to be a people that, that, that rallies around the idea of what they call kindness in religion? Where we are defined by God coming and destroying and making right. We, uh, you realize that I spent most of my life believing that Jesus came the first time as the lamb and come the second time as the lion to destroy. First time he came to kill them, second time he comes. First time he comes, well, actually what I said was the first time he comes, he comes for us. The second time he comes, he comes for you. This radical countercultural life that rises in the face of all 
essence of what is salvation for. Not what is it, but what is it for? What is the big picture? Salvation is the restoration of all creation to God's original design. Let me say that again. What salvation is, is salvation is the restoration of all of creation to God's original design. That's it. That's it. It's God restoring everything to what he intended in the first place. Salvation is about recovering our identity and our purpose through what Christ has accomplished in death, burial, and resurrection. In Christ, we can once again wear the image of God and exercise wise and just dominion in his good creation. Salvation begins with pardon and a new life that leads to the good work we've been called to, pleading justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God in the process. Salvation is not an end unto itself. We have something to do. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's masterpiece. He created in us, or excuse me, He created in us anew, Christ Jesus, so that we can do the good works that He planned from long ago. That's what Jesus came for. James famously warns that if we separate faith from works, we end up with a dead religion and meaningless faith. Yet in recent history, we've experienced a tragic separation of personal faith and social justice. It came about during the 20th century, the modernist controversy when the Protestant church experienced divorce. Many of you might be aware of this, but essentially at the turn of the century, the, the, the Protestants and evangelicals divorced. We're really good at divorce, by the way. First we divorced from the Catholic church and the Protestants, and then we divorced from the Protestant church and the evangelicals. That's what we did. And the primary reason for that was that um, uh, Protestants and evangelicals divorced over the role of Scripture. This is where we came up with what we call inerrancy. Inerrancy means the whole Bible is literal and inerrant. This is what that divorce was over. Evangelicals, in the terms of this divorce, got personal salvation and Protestants got social justice. This is why you see a lot of um, the Presbyterian Church or even within the Catholic Church, um, but um, Episcopalian, they're, they're very social justice Protestants, right? I guarantee you, it, I think today it's described by the um, uh, one of the, maybe it's the Presbyterian Church, um, uh, but one of the churches, one of the big churches out there is they've got some kind of social, um, refugees welcome here. Guarantee that's not evangelical. Because within Protestant uh, spending, Lutheran, um, uh, maybe Methodist a little bit, um, but definitely Presbyterian, um, Episcopalian, those got social justice, and we got personal salvation. They want to care for the poor, and we want to get everybody to heaven. That's kind of that's how we grew up. That's the way it worked, and it, it all came down to how we read Scripture. The different, you want to know the primary difference is? They read the book of Revelation, house down in corner. We read the book of Revelation like God is coming to kill everybody. So if God is coming to kill everybody, we better get everybody saved. And we should give no regard to how the earth is taken care of because we're all getting out of here. You do realize that the church was doing their job. Whether you want to call it global warming or you want to call it uh, climate change should have been our cause in the first place. 
because if we believe, even if we do believe that there's going to be a judgment to come, we get the earth. I'd rather it not be trash. I mean, isn't that just the most simplistic, obvious thing in the world? That if anybody's concerned about how the earth is treated, it should be us. We believe we get it. Rather, but if the thought is that we get the bus ticket out of God's, why do we care if our school is getting cleaned? Why do we care if it's a free deal? Why do we care if people are getting cancer because of radiation? It's no big deal. We're leaving. So you see what happens, and this is very important. So what happens then is that you really can't separate, even though we've tried, you can't separate the proclamation of personal salvation, which is giving to others, and doing justice, good works, and be true to the pattern given to us by the prophets, the apostles, but most importantly, there was a communion on weekend where certain affected even the church that had only faithfully gathered as an essential, non-negotiable part of our identity. Do you realize I think it's one of the greatest tragedies of our time that we don't claim Martin Luther King as the greatest emphasis of what it means to be an evangelical? I think he is the greatest, the greatest prophet, and I'm using the term prophet They really don't want to use it to do with the rest of his message because the rest of his message is always about praying for the poor. But his, his whole thing was about equality. That was not race-specific. His thing was about equality. It, the most obvious was race. It needed to be dealt with, of course. But it was also women's rights, and it was also caring for the poor, and it was also that you weren't supposed to have a great divide between those that had and those that had nothing. That's what he was looking for. And yet, in some wonky way, we don't even see him as a prophet. We just think he's a social prophet. Friends, that is the danger. That's just the danger. So I ask you again, what is salvation for? Thankfully, within this community, we, yeah, no, no, no. Jesus didn't say we should let our light so shine before men that when they see the gospel tracks, bumper stickers, and Christian t-shirts, they will glorify God. Jesus didn't say that. What Jesus actually said is let our light shine so that men can see the good works of God and glorify God. So what's salvation for? Does it mean some part of you, let's say your spirit, gets saved and gets to exist in a non-spatial, non-temporal existence that's following your death? that your spirit is somehow harvested out of you and shoots off to an unknown place that is not defined by the means of your faith. And that's where it exists. There's this great separation that happens. The great separation is somehow, I don't know where your body goes, it falls to the ground, your spirit shoots out of you, is harvested in some way, and that's where it goes. Is that salvation? Salvation looks like this. It, it's, it's, it's the thought that it's salvation for another time and a place. I, I never really realized how much of my identity salvation was in the now. 
salvation is what happened after I died. So my, the only purpose for this life was to qualify me for if I got dying or not. It's like my life now is to qualify it officially up there that you don't love me any other way. So the good life is now. That's the point. The good life is supposed to be now. I suppose the reality of it is, is you, if you embrace Platonism, which is where the idea that we get the bus ticket up when Jesus comes to get us, that's that was never, ever, ever, ever taught by the Jews or the early followers. Some Greek pagan philosopher dictated to us the primary point of the gospel good news. And, and so we think we get out of here and that's what this life is for, is just like the, the trial period, the training time for what's to come. I, I really don't think we're understanding. So what is God trying to do? I really think God is in Christ at some point going to say, God is it, within this, he's actually drawing us. And it's not in a way that Plato understood salvation. It's, it is re, uh, the, the, the thought that God is saving. He's restoring. And let's make no mistake about it. This concept of salvation did uh, did come originally for the Jews. In fact, Jesus said salvation is first to the Jews. What we thought that meant is salvation is uh, the Jews get to pick first. What Jesus is possibly saying is the way you see salvation is how it was based out of the Jewish thinking, which is never afterlife. It's not the magic bus like the Grateful Dead sang about, except this one's taking us in the rapture ride to heaven. salvation that is God provided. True salvation is through a trial. The salvation that's the Jewish, the Catholic thoughts that we speak of, it's not a final escape to a spiritual life, nihilistic, post-mortem, non-spatial, non-temporal, platonistic. Instead, it is present. It is earthly and holds out hope for this world. This is why so many earthly elements are found within the salvation story. Jesus came here, living a life made livable by the incarnation and resurrection of the Son of God is what salvation's about. So the reality of it is, this is why I get so absolutely inside out frustrated with the church when all the church talks about, especially evangelicals, is how bad the world's getting. I'm so stinking tired of it. It is absolutely satanic. I use that word on purpose. Satanic. You want to know why? Because the word Satan means the accuser. We are, we are living in an age where the church, the light bearers, the ones who are called to live in the light so that the darkness can't comprehend, are in the business of looking around and trying to tell the rest of the light how much darkness there is and tease that the darkness is overtaking the light and then pray as a last second Hail Mary at the end of the football game that God's going to hurry, hurry up and get us out of here. 
it makes no sense. The reality of it is, is that we are all living in this incredible age where, yes, there are challenges, but grace should be absolutely interested in what's going on around us. We should be absolutely interested in taking care of those that we take care of. We should be absolutely interested in light overcoming darkness. The idea is salvation is lived out by living life well. I would venture to say that it makes no sense that a Christian would be saved. There's nothing further from what it means to be saved. It's, it really is it is illogical. And I would venture to say that you're looking at the wrong thing. Like, okay, so by doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God, by forgiving, by healing, by liberating people, by creating fruitful and pleasing things, by worship and working and sharing life together, by loving and laughing and living and forgiving people, this is how we live in salvation. By redeeming, because we've been redeemed. Life is made livable, and a life made livable is what salvation is all about in the first place. It begins with being reconciled and, and in some way awakening to the reality of who God is. It moves then to being able to reconcile to God first. Salvation is all about reconciliation. We must be people who are engaged in the good news story of reconciliation. So as a philosopher once said, the challenges of salvation are this effect. We should be reconciling people to God. Excuse me. We should reconcile people to God. We should reconcile people to one another. We should heal the sick. We should elevate the poor. We should um, set the captive free. We should bring justice to the oppressed. We should do work. We should pray enthusiastically. We should beautify the world. We should work for peace. We should work for prosperity. We should get married. We should raise children. We should compose music. We should write novels. We should paint masterpieces. We should create art. We should educate ourselves and others. We should study God's creation. Study the stars. Study the sun. Live beautifully. Celebrate human existence. We should find mountains. We should swim in the ocean. We should love. We should laugh. We should live. We should confer dignity upon one another. We should worship and work and wonder. And we should do all of these things in perfect unity. That's what salvation is all about. So, I get frustrated with Salvation Week Primitive presenter, excuse me, loading up the church bus for a one-way trip to heaven. This is not, this world is not my home. I'm trying to go back. You realize that that's not encryption. Actually, that's copyright. This world is your home. Sorry. Did you see it? If it's not confusing, it's really confused with that whole prayer thing about what heaven is like, right? It should have been, our Father who art in heaven, let us get there too. So within this beginning of life, the awakening living 
we recognize that we have no need to push and strive or to fight for our place. Our place, this life can begin to live. Restoration to his home in him is always available. God is here. He is all around us, never even inviting us to step into the river. Even our language is fought with people understanding that we never step into something like that uh, or on the drive home. When we have a great service, what do we say? God really showed up today. Or when we're driving, do we say, God, please be with us in our traffic? Do we realize that the implication is that he's not already everywhere? He's with you. So isn't it amazing that when we say God really showed up today, does that mean there were other times that he was less present? Because now you're striking at the very nature of everything we believe about God, which is that he is the fabric of all of creation. So how could God not be here? Or how could God not be with you? Let me give you traveling mercies. I've been playing on that one for, for a while. Traveling mercies. Right? God be with you. What you actually are saying is, God, let me be aware. God, let me be aware. Let me be aware that you're always with me. Let me be aware that you're always here. Let me be aware that you're always around me and it's impossible for me to separate you because you're the fiber and fabric of the universe. And in fact, one of the best, uh, you know, the guy that was the apostle, Paul, we call him the apostle uh, Paul in training, he was his apprentice. What he actually said is, God is the ground of all creation. He's the DNA strand of everything. So how could the DNA strand of everything not be with you? The invitation is not for us to, to in some way welcome him into our life, although I understand what we're implying or what we're trying to convey. What actually it is, he's already here. We are already with him. You cannot obtain the presence of God because we are already totally held together by the presence of God. Trying to get there takes a lot of time. Trying to live it takes time. Welcome him. So that's the point of life. Hey, that is the good life. The good life is once again to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk in the ways of God. Because within that, that's what salvation is like. And I'm here to tell you, I'm here for other things, and I'm here to tell you this. But I want to mention that salvation is for today. It's to be a good life. It's to do something where we are, we're living and we're enjoying and we're, and, and we're embracing the beauty of what God is doing. And I do not believe for a moment that there's anything that is defined in the afterlife in the Bible that we should not be able to also find in the personal life. So, I don't believe that I can't live for other things. I believe that I am called to live for other things. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Somehow, I, I know that we're going to do this, but God, I would need more than this. To accept his glory, to be with him, to partner with him in his gospel. And he didn't need me to restore fallen humanity. Let me be clear about that. 
because if you read the story in chronological order, meaning I was created before. So I, I, what I'm telling you is it's more than just that. It, it was within his heart since the beginning of his creation. Now, I'm not saying God is bored either when he saves you. Right? But you are not simply disobedient to the image of that creator. says there is hope that truly does attend God's people. And there and, and if if the thought is that darkness is abounding, his hope still has still abounds. So let's be on the side of that. Let's be on the side of living in beauty. Let's be on the side. I'm not talking about sitting your head in the sand, but actually living salvation now. Living in who he is. Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you that you have invited us into this life to walk with you and to partner with you to and to just be. And we ask that you would free us. Help us to embrace it. Help us to live in this. Help us to walk with you in this declaration, this pattern, this flow of what you're doing. Help us to live in that river, to engage in what it takes be in you, and that you would be, as Paul said, you in us and us in you. Thank you, Father. You're so good to us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All right. God bless you. We'll see everybody on Thursday. Don't forget, text us. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.